Welcome to Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. It's a podcast from Talbot School of Theology here at Biola University. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics. And I'm your co-host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Apologetics. We're here today with a, a guest who we've had on several times before. He's, he's easily the most insightful theologian I know. Uh, Dr. Brent Waters has spent a, a career writing really insightful and theologically grounded stuff on a whole range of controversial ethical and social issues, and he's written on something that's completely different than that, uh, and it's, his book is entitled Common Callings and Ordinary Virtue. I've sort of, my, my shorthand for it is a theology of ordinary life. Uh, so, Brent, we're so glad to have you join us. Uh, he is he's the almost retired uh, endowed professor at uh, Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary outside Chicago. He's taught Christian ethics there for about 20 years, held an endowed chair, and has been director of the Stead Center for uh, Ethics and uh, for Christian Ethics uh, for some time. Um, and is, is I look forward, Brent, to when you will actually be completely retired and can devote yourself fully to writing. I, I mean, you've been so productive. I can't imagine how productive you're going to be when you're fully retired, although hopefully you haven't run out of gas. Uh, so anyway, welcome. So glad to have you with us. Uh, and we're looking forward to diving into this ex- extraordinary book on ordinary life. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me back. So what, you know, after you've, you've spent a career uh, writing on all these controversial ethical and social issues, what motivated you to take up this subject of the, the sort of the common and the ordinary part of life and how that shapes us? Well, two things, really. Um, you know, for, for more than 20 years, I actually commuted back and forth between Pittsburgh and Evanston, Illinois, because my wife was working at the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, and there, uh, I was over there in an apartment part of the time. And what I discovered is things don't get magically done. I mean, if you don't wash the dishes, they don't get clean. <laughs> if you don't do the floors, they don't get clean. And I suddenly I had a great appreciation for just, you know, the domestic skills that make everyday life possible and, you know, doing the shopping, the cooking and everything else. What reinforced that then was an extended stay in the hospital of over a month. And I realized how much I owed to the nurses because they just took care of me in terms of ordinary things. I couldn't go to the bathroom by myself and things, things like that. And that, re- and that made me to really begin to reinforce my thinking. Maybe one of the ways, one of the most important ways that we fulfill the second great commandment of loving our neighbors is in doing ordinary things for people. And that's how we care for one another is, is taking care of the ordinary. Um, and that's just, you know, and what I mean by the ordinary, I mean, you know, mind numbing, tedious chores that are terribly necessary in order to have a, a, a good life. There's a quote in your book in which you say, the commonplace is a school of virtue. What do you mean by that? And how does ordinary just daily experiences form our character? Yeah, I think, you know, the, the, the prerequisite for virtue, I think, is, is habit. And I think in the ordinary, you develop habits. I mean, you get up and you make the bed every day. You, you dust, you clean. Those all are become habituated. But then you can build upon them for how you care for one another, how you have uh, 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 virtues of, uh, of what you might say of, of greater significance. But nonetheless, they build upon those common and ordinary things that you do day in and day out. 
Um, and I think in the absence, then um, the other thing happens is that you become a victim to vice because you don't have the habits to to fall back upon. Um, much of our lives, I think, are lived in the realm that we don't think much about, but they're constantly there and they motivate us. I mean, I don't think you have to think about being honest. You just, that becomes habitual. So Brent, I mean, other than the fact that these are commonplace and ordinary things, mm-hmm. uh, what, what, what else keeps us from paying attention to this part of life? I mean, I think that there's got to be more of a story to that. Um, besides the fact that these are just sort of common, ordinary things. I think right now we're living in an era of what I would call the cult of the extraordinary, where we, we believe that the only way to live a good life is to live an extraordinary life. And we just then, you know, uh, try to leave the ordinary behind as, as, as being unimportant. But really what, what the quest for being extraordinary means is, is that uh, they usually serve as distractions, which are reinforced by social media, uh, television, things like that. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that you shouldn't strive to achieve great things, but you don't do that at the expense of the ordinary. It's not that somehow we denigrate the commonplace uh, because it is somehow um, unimportant. I think to the contrary, it really is quite important. In the mundane, we catch glimpses of what God created us to be. That's how you put it. That, mm-hmm. Tell us what you mean by that. I think we were created um, to love our neighbors, to love creation, to love God. And those are not extraordinary. Those are ordinary things. I mean, that's, it's, I think it's, that's an affirmation of the incarnation that God becomes a human being a very ordinary human being uh, who faces all the, the things that we face as, as creatures. And in that creaturely life, in that common and, and ordinary way of life, we catch glimpses of what we were created for. And, that, and that's why I think that the common and, and ordinary are also iconic. Sometimes we see through them to a, a greater realm of, of, of mystery and eternity, uh, which brackets the ordinary. And that's why I think, again, not to give them short shrift, but they, they are markers for how, how we see. I mean, you know, I don't want to be overly romantic, but uh, I think you catch a glimpse of, you know, uh, what it means to love when you spend 47 years with, a, with a, a spouse and day in and day out, you come to know one another. And it's just a way of all of a sudden you're beginning to say, so this is what we were created for. Now, now Brent, the title of your book has to do with callings. You say mm-hmm. common callings. How do you understand the idea of a calling? Uh, and you, you, you say in the book it's different from a vocation. So first of all, what's, what's the difference between the two? And then why do you think there is so much discussion of, of calling that's about, about me, finding my calling? Uh, and it, it, it's, it's sometimes I think borders on being a little bit narcissistic, uh, and I think that that's, that's different than how you understand the notion of a calling. So how, spell that out a little bit. Yeah, I think a calling is something that um, we're led into, and not necessarily something that we would choose to do if we were left for on our own devices. In other words, I think it's 
it's the idea of it's what we should be doing and not necessarily what we want to be doing. Um, and callings are not necessarily tied to uh, a paying job or something like that. I think we're called to be parents, we're called to be spouses, we're called to be friends, um, we're called to be good neighbors. Um, and all of that entails certain vocational skills, if you will. I mean, for example, if you're, and, and those are very practical, uh, very, um, again, ordinary. I mean, when you're called to be a minister, you have to learn which end of the baby to baptize. You have to learn um, <laughs> how, how to prepare a sermon, how to preach, how to provide pastoral counsel. Again, those are all very practical. And it's the same thing when, if, you know, if you're called to be a banker or a parent, there's certain skills you need to learn. And those, that's part of the vocation of it. And it's just part of the training of it. Um, but I think a lot of times we don't really recognize that a calling is not necessarily self-fulfilling. And I think that that's where we get, that's, that's why I'm not really impressed when people say, I want to follow my passion. Well, your passion may not be what you should be following. Hmm. I mean, God may be calling you to do something completely different than what you have a passionate care about. Yeah, ne never mind the fact that nobody might pay you for your passion either. <laughs> That's right. Um, That's right. Um, yeah. So how, I mean, let's go a little, a little deeper into that. Mm -hmm. You maintain that the, the mundane actually helps shrink our egos. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, you know, and that our, our, our calling is, it sounds like is something, not so much that we find, but something that finds us. Yes. Is that, is that fair? That is fair. Mm -hmm. So, is that is how does that connect with uh, the idea of the the common, the ordinary, actually shrinking our egos rather than stoking them? Because sometimes we're called to do things which are very undignified in our sense of self-importance. I mean, I can still remember as a, a new parent was thinking. How is it can be that I can have all this education, all these fine interests, and I have to change a stinking diaper? Okay. <laughs> um, that, that is a very humbling um, occupation. But there's all sorts of things that we do, which, you know, no matter what our sense of self-importance might be, we sometimes have to do things like, you know, change a dirty bed, run an errand late at night. And yet these are all terribly necessary if you're going to love someone. And so I think that, that what, the, what, what the calling and vocation does is it, it gets us out of ourselves and reorients our view toward, toward the other. Um, and therefore, the calling is, an, is in some large measure, um, uh, has, a, has a large measure of instrumentality. It's an instrument of how we serve one another, love one another. What is so formative about the challenging of neighbor love, in particular for neighbors we didn't choose, that may be a little bit more difficult to love than others? Yeah, that I think that's that's something we don't pay significant or enough attention to is that the fact that we're we're often called to love people we don't like, and that's something I tried to drill in when teaching seminary students. You're going to have to serve people you you don't necessarily like. And yet you're going to have to learn how to love them. And I think, you know, families are also oftentimes schools of learning to, to love people you don't necessarily like. Um, and, and these are not people that we would choose necessarily, but we are still in community with them. 
in, in bonds with them. And, and I think that that's something we need to remember because increasingly we live in a world where we believe we can, we only need to care about the people we choose. Um, and that's, I think that is developing a kind of poisonous tribalism that's, that's permeating our politics and permeating our social life. And it's just not healthy. We need to learn how to, how to work with on a daily basis, people that we disagree terribly with, but we need to get some things done and learn how to work together. And I think that's part of what the calling is, is to love your neighbor is learning, learning to negotiate a world of people you did not choose. Now you, you also point out that uh, we have obligations to strangers, uh, many of whom we encounter on a daily basis and uh, we depend, and it was really insightful to recognize how much we depend on strangers for what we need to flourish as human beings, but but other than getting from them the things that we need for ourselves, what are what do you see are our obligations to strangers that may be different from neighbors or friends? Well, I think I think one obligation that comes immediately to mind is is simply the necessity of being civil, um, and and that's you know to be civil I think builds upon uh, habits of manners. I mean manners are not unimportant. To learn to be polite, I think, is the basis of building virtue and building even just a basic civility. Now, practically, what does that mean in, in dealing with strangers? I think you need to treat strangers as strangers. And that means you don't assume a kind of immediate familiarity with them or immediate sense of friendship, because I think that that really then does not treat them for who they really are. They are they're not familiar with you and you are not familiar with them. And therefore, you need to have a, a certain kind of distance, a certain kind of opaqueness to how how you interact. On the other hand, I think there is a, a notion of hospitality that you treat the nature in a hospitable manner, assuming a, 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 an initial stance of goodwill and 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 to act appropriately in in that regard. And you're right. I mean, most of the neighbors we encounter are going to be strangers. And we need, I think, an appropriate understanding of what does it mean to love the neighbor as stranger. You talk about how marriage is an antidote for self-fulfillment run amok. I'd love to hear what you mean by that, how it operates that way, but also for singles, what that can look like to not have self-fulfillment run amok when they don't have a spouse potentially playing that role in their lives. That's really a good question. Um, on the marriage part of it, I think that how it's an antidote is simply you begin to realize that to be married means you're no longer your center of attention. And neither is, is the spouse, it's the marriage, which is the center of attention. And how, how do you begin to build that over time so that both of you are brought into that uh, relationship? So how I would characterize it is to say, um, you know, in, in like when I, when you do premarital counseling is, is that you kind of ask the question, so why do you want to get married? And it almost invariably has something to do with self-fulfillment. And um, what I want to say is that point is that then you're going to be terribly disappointed because marriage isn't always going to be self-fulfilling. That's kind of a bonus. Um, that the orientation is how do you, how do you, how do you learn to love the other as other? And, and not as simply a projection of, of someone who satisfies your wants and needs. Now, it's not to say that marriage will prove to be self-fulfilling. I'm just saying that's not the ultimate goal of, of it. 
And by, by doing that, by, in a sense, getting your ego out of the way, I think you're actually potentially um, a better spouse. But the question so, is, yeah, yeah, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Just what, what about for singles? Yeah. I think, I think we need to recover, within, with, particularly within uh, uh, the church, a calling to singleness, which we don't, particularly as Protestants, we don't have. Because singles, I think, for Protestants are simply people who are not currently married. That's true. Um, yeah, yeah and, in, a, in somewhat of a holding pattern. Yeah, yeah, and and I think you know we have to say, okay, maybe maybe some people are called permanently to be single. What does that mean? And maybe some people are called to be single for a, a, a period of time because this enables them then to ful- fulfill different callings and vocations that God is, is bringing them into. And so I think for Protestants, that's really the question to ask is, is what does it mean to be faithfully single? And not to see singleness as simply an aberration. Okay. Yeah, I think part of that is too, is sort of recognizing that mar- marriage is not a cure-all for mm-hmm. loneliness, for you know the, the character flaws that we have. Um, would it be fair to say that we, maybe in our in many of our church traditions, we have oversold what marriage can provide for a person, and may need to may need to be seeing that more realistically? Yeah, I think we have oversold it as, as being a, a, a cure all is a good way to put it. Um, no, Mar- this is why I didn't go into marketing. Um, <laughs> marriage is good. Marriage is a lot of hard work. It doesn't mean that it's not you know a loving relationship, but marriage is hard work, and I think that that's what we need to prepare people for because basically you are committing yourself to another. And what does that mean? I mean, what does the ideal of lifelong marriage really mean? Um, and I think it means you know to take those vows very seriously, you know, in in, in you know. For richer, for poorer, and, and and those traditional vows are very important. Um, and I, again, it's not as if you go into marriage simply because you see the other as the means of your self fulfillment. I think you go into a marriage as saying, "How can we together have a good marriage?" Amen. So, Brent, let's move from the the area of ordinary relationships to sort of ordinary activities. You, de- you describe a number of these that I want to touch on. Uh, how, how does our, I mean, you touch on like work uh, and things like that. So let's start with that. How does our work, and this, we'll start with paid work for, for, to start with. How does our paid work constitute loving God and our neighbor when I think most people are in their work just to make a paycheck, to pay for their retirement, to fund their families, strictly instrumental. Uh, help us have a little deeper, more theologically grounded view of work. Well, I think, you know, first of all, part, part of a work is, you know, it is a job. It is a way to put, a, you know, food on the table, a roof over your head, prepare for your retirement. And, and none of that is unimportant, but I think you're, you're right. It's not if it's just solely that, then it's not really a calling and vocation. To be called is really to see is how through your work do you serve and meet the needs of um, the people who depend upon you. And what I mean by that is, okay, if you study economics, one of the things you learn is autonomy is a great fiction. 
we are terribly dependent upon one another. I mean, I don't know of anyone who grows all their own food, builds their house, builds their own car and things <laughs> like that. So we depend upon an awful lot of neighbors to do things for us. And are they self-interested? Yes, they are. I mean, Adam Smith makes that very clear. But on the other hand, through pursuing those self-interests, we still help one another. And I think also when you really meet people that love their jobs, almost invariably, it means serving someone else. Mm. And they really see that because part of the ordinary is just meeting the physical and material well-being of other people in, in, in fulfilling and in, in meeting the needs that you have as well. And that's where that exchange comes in. And I think that that's, again, hasn't received enough attention within Christian theology and ethics is to see how do we serve each other to through these just main mundane exchanges that we in, in, uh, go through every day in interacting with people that, that we call neighbors. I remember as an undergrad here at Biola going through the mild crisis of what do I want to do with my life and major in. And I read a former president who wrote a book on faith. And he said, if you try to figure out what to do with your life, just find a way to love God and love other people with your gifts and you'll live a meaningful life. And I thought that was so simple, but exactly what I needed to hear at that point in my life. And I thought of that because you talk about how our work constitutes loving God and neighbor. And by the way, with the qualifier, whether paid or not, such as housework, et cetera. So talk about what that looks like, how our work is actually a way of loving God and loving our neighbors. Well, again, it's, it's, it's through, I think, you know, work is utterly dependent upon other people. I mean, I, I don't really have never met anyone who just works and has never had contact with anyone else, either directly or indirectly. So work is oriented toward others. So if it's oriented toward others, then isn't this a way that, that we fulfill, again, the command to love God and neighbor? Because we are created in these situations where, you know, within the Christian tradition, there's a strong notion God purposely created us to be interdependent creatures so that we wouldn't become prideful. And part of being oriented toward, I think, um, meeting the needs of neighbors, either through paid employment or unpaid or not unpaid uh, kind of services, that's, again, a very humbling uh, notion when you start thinking about it of not only do I serve others, they serve me as well. And it's it's in this reciprocity that I think we begin to learn again about you know the, the wonderfully creative ways that God brings creation into being. Um, that of course He gave us those two great commands because that's what we were created for. Now, Brent, you you highlight several ordinary activities that I wasn't expecting in this, and about, particularly about how they form our character. Things like etiquette and manners. Uh, how we present ourselves in terms of our appearance, uh, those are all, you, rec- you suggest those are all character-forming things that actually constitute, uh, you know, loving God and neighbor. Uh, so let's take, let's take etiquette and manners first. How, is, how, does that const- I mean, how does that constitute loving God and loving our neighbor? Well, first of all, as a sidelight, I, I, this is where I discovered that Miss Manners is actually a very good philosopher and, and the and the advice that she provides is, is actually usually, although it's humorous and, and sometimes a little edgy, it's actually oftentimes on target. And what, and what I discovered in doing this research is that through etiquette and manners, 
we begin to treat one another with the respect that you should treat other people. That uh, again, it's, it's not this kind of uh, easy, casual notion, nor is it you know uh, stiff or obscure. It's really manners is a way of showing respect for the other, of treating the other um, as a neighbor. Um, and in the and in the absence of etiquette, you know how sh- how we treat one another then is always up for grabs. And I think that that's a, a very difficult way to live because you really don't know how to treat one another when there's no standards of etiquette or or or, or manners. You talk about through our appearance, like just the clothes we wear, the way we may do our hair, those kind of things, is a way of loving God and our neighbor. That's another one I might not have expected the ordinary to go into, but but talk about that a little bit, if you will. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I think sometimes we, you know, for a while there was that notion that you dress for success, so you you <laughs> really dress as a way of presenting yourself, but not the job that you're in now, but the job you want next. Okay, th- those kinds of things. I think that's just, just just backwards. I think actually you dress as a way of expressing the level of esteem that you hold your neighbors in when you're in, in a situation. So for example, I think it sends a message. If I were to walk into the classroom in jeans and a dirty t-shirt of what the esteem that I hold my, my students in, mm. as opposed to a coat and tie, for example, and I know in California ties are forbidden now, but we still wear, <laughs> we still wear them in the East and the Midwest. Okay. Um, but there is, it is a way of expressing, um, uh, how how you you know the level of respect of the people you're dealing with. I mean, one of the things that came to my mind was, I remember talking to a student who was very discouraged because uh, he didn't do quite well in his in his first ordination exam. And we were talking, and it didn't seem like he gave really bad answers or anything. And finally, I just asked him. I said, "Well, how were you dressed?" And he said, "Well, in in in, in a t-shirt and jeans." And I said, "Well, if you don't look like a minister, they're not going to treat you like a minister." Wow. Um, so there is, I mean, I mean, the appearance does matter. Now, I think there's a deeper meaning to this too, as well, is that in a sense, you and I really all we have are appearances. Because there is this notion of persona. And what we deal with is the persona of each other. We, unlike God, cannot know fully what's behind the mask. And therefore, the appearance should at least begin to to reflect what one's deepest convictions are, what one's faith in God is like. And so there, I think that's, that's the deeper theological significance. I really didn't explore much in the book, but I would like to explore it now as a kind of you know, follow-up to it because it's, it's the notion of what is a faithful appearance. And, and I think you know, that's, that's connected with several kinds of biblical uh, teachings about you know, the, really what we see with God is the, the three persona that's deeply important to the Trinity. And how, how is this notion that appearance isn't so much a, a falsity, it's basically the limits of being a creature. We're never going to see one another fully. It's the end of the first Corinthians 13. You know, how, how do you live in a, in, in a world where you can only see things darkly as reflections in a mirror? I gotta tell you, Brent, you are convicting me as we sit here. I'm looking at my co-host. <laughs> 
in a button-up shirt, a sport jacket. I'm in ripped jeans and a Biola sweat top. <laughs> but this is radio, so maybe we it can get radio, away with sure. it, or at least podcasts. But sure. uh, Hey, last question for me is, is this the kind of book that really could only be written at least in the latter part of someone's career that just requires some reflection that someone might ha- not have maybe towards the beginning. Yeah, I think so. I mean, actually, Gil Mylander writes uh, an endorsement of the book and says, I hope Waters is not offended, but this could not have been written by a young man. Um, I think that's probably true, that you begin to see life differently as you pass over. I mean, when you, no long- when you know that you're no longer on the sunny side of the mortality slope, you do see things differently you do begin to reflect differently. I mean, I think Faye Vincent a few years ago wrote a wonderful column saying that as you grow older, you see life increasingly in the rearview mirror. And in looking in the rearview mirror, you begin to see things you didn't see in the past. Or, and you begin to put that together. You begin to think differently. I think that's right. That this is, I think if I had attempted this early in my career, it, 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 I couldn't have written it. It, it was only when, in some sense, I realized this is a book I can write now that it began to fall into place. Yeah. Yeah, I well, think that's right. You've, you've seen a lot of good stuff in the rearview mirror hmm. that you've given us in this book. Brent, I, I can't let you get away without talking about your postscript to the book, which is so such a provocative title. And it's, it, it's, it's, in, it's entitled On the Good of Being Boring. Could you tell us about that? What 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 is the good of being boring? Well, you know, sometimes sometimes authors come up with snappy titles, and then they have to do something with it. Um, <laughs> um, okay, the two synonyms that I would use for boring in this respect would be one would be steadfast. Is that to be to to be um, steadfast is day in and day out just being there, and the other. Uh, loyalty. The other synonym would be loyalty. That you are, you are loyal to the one that you are trying to serve, and and all of those strikes me as being terribly mundane, terribly ordinary, and even boring. That some of the most steadfast and loyal people I know are really not very interesting. Um, but they're there, and they're there day in and day out, and that's not something that's um, all that commonplace anymore. That brings to mind what Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians, where it's, re, it's required of a person that they be faithful. Sort of a, that's, that's sort of steadfast, and that's, that's pretty high on the list of things that are important to, uh, I think, to the follower of Christ. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty convinced that um, on the day of judgment, the first question we're going to be asked is, are, are, you, are you interesting? You know, I just don't think that's going to be something that are going to be held to account. But are you, have you, have you been there for the people that, yeah. that, that God's brought into your life and through and cross your paths? I think right. they, yeah. well, I, I want to, I want to commend your book to our listeners. This is, uh, I think you've gotten a good glimpse here at uh, some of the, this just so insightful stuff, common callings and ordinary virtues by our friend Brent Waters. 
Uh, it's just, I mean, it, it's just, it's not, it's not the kind of book that uh, that you want to speed read through because there's just, there's so much wisdom here, and it just, I think, I think it's caused me to think about a lot of things that I've never even considered before. Uh, how the how the ordinary things of life have this powerful way of shaping our character, of revealing who we are, and are ultimately, I think, very powerful ways of fulfilling the man the the, the two great commandments to love God and love our neighbors. And it sort of makes sense to me that if uh, you know we spend so much of our time on these ordinary things and ordinary relationships, that it just makes sense in God's economy that those would be very formative for us. So Brent, so, so glad to have you with us on this. Uh, thanks so much for your insight. Uh, for you know, for for writing writing the book, I want to commend it to our listeners. It's just it's a terrific read, and I would encourage our listeners to to take it slowly and carefully and thoughtfully, uh, and you will get a great deal out of it. So, very grateful for your work, uh, particularly on this one, but also for what you know for a career of uh, writing really insightful stuff. So, Brent, thanks so much for being with us. No, thank you, Scott. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. The Think Biblically podcast is brought to you by Talbot School of Theology at Biola University, offering programs in Southern California and online, including our Institute for Spiritual Formation. Visit biola.edu slash Talbot in order to learn more. If you've enjoyed today's conversation with our friend, Dr. Brent Waters, give us a rating on your podcast app and please share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening, and remember, Think biblically about everything.